Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Sherry. Morning, redemption. See you all. Uh, if you are new here or you're from out of town, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Arcadia, and we're glad that you are here. We want to welcome you. Um, most of you that attend regularly or are part of Redemption Church know that uh, during the year we follow something called a preaching calendar that's generally uh, put together by uh, a small uh, committee of the lead pastors at Redemption uh, Church, and it's approved by the executive committee and then approved by all of the lead pastors. So pretty much any Sunday, uh, you can hear a sermon uh, in, say, Alhambra, and you're going to get the same not necessarily the same sermon, but you're going to get the same text is going to be preached on in all of the other eight congregations as well. You might get a different flavor of the text because of the local community, but nevertheless, we're following along on the same uh, text. However, occasionally, uh, we do have uh, what we call one-offs or open Sundays where we can do uh, locally whatever it is that we feel like doing. And so we're going to have two of those now, today and next Sunday, the 6th. Uh, or I'm sorry, the 5th of January, we're going to be doing uh, these little one-offs uh, that aren't part of the preaching calendar. And I'll explain the calendar for 2020 coming up. So what we're going to do next week is uh, we're going to do again uh, the year in review sermon. This is something that uh, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, used to do every year. He did this 25 straight uh, years uh, at East Valley Bible Church and eventually Redemption Church Gilbert. Um, and it, it's a very, very good review. Uh, last year, I did it for the first time. I'm using Tom's outline, but, but our illustrations here, my illustrations here. Uh, last year, we did it for the very first time in Arcadia. And uh, people really appreciated it, it seemed like, and people uh, tended to comment on it and remember it. Uh, it's not that I'm going to do it every year, but one of the things that came out from the survey that we took recently is that uh, 27% of the people that attend Arcadia have been here less than a year, it, which indicates, first of all, that we're growing. But second of all, it means that um, more than a quarter of, of, the, of the congregation has never even heard this review, has been exposed to it. And so we thought we'd do it again. And besides, it's a good review. Even if you did it 25 years in a row, it's, it's really helpful and really good. So that's what we're going to do um, uh, next week. Today, what we're going to do is going to feel a little bit... Uh, random, but um, I think it, it'll be helpful. Uh, I'm going to give you, first of all, some helpful, I think, information 
um, that will help you to kind of navigate what's going on uh, in the next year. <clears throat> and then I'm going to just make three observations that I think uh, are important. It's going to be, it's going to feel a little bit like a family chat, only I'm going to do all the chatting, okay? So those of you who are here from out of town, uh, there, I think there will be things that are of interest to you as well, but, um, but you're, you're locally here at Arcadia Redemption, and so you're going to hear some things, some of our own inside baseball here as well. So uh, in terms of helpful information, I've got three items. Here's the first one. Um, as you know, as some of you know, uh, we have recently hired two new full-time pastors at Redemption Arcadia. We are growing. Uh, we've assessed our needs. Uh, Cody has uh, left and gone into the marketplace, and so we've hired two new full-time pastors. So one is James Delorado. He's um, uh, started already uh, a few Sundays ago. He's our new pastor of communities and local outreach. And the other one is Tyler Thompson, and he is uh, coming from... Uh, California, and uh, he's going to be our pastor of church formation and worship. He and his family are coming from California. They're coming uh, in kind of early January. They'll be here kind of unloading their their truck the 8th and the 9th of January. He will officially start on the 13th, though he'll be at the service on the, on the 12th. He won't actually lead worship probably until the 20, uh, 26th, but he'll be around starting in the middle of, of uh, January. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do was kind of have a formal time when, when you would have an opportunity to meet, be able to meet them and get to know them a little bit better. And so we came up with this idea. The staff came up with this idea. We're going to take the January and the February Backstories event, and we're going to combine them. And on Thursday night, January 30th, we're going to do a Backstories uh, with... Tyler Thompson and James Delorado, but also we're going to have Tyler James on the platform and Trey Fraley, so our other two pastors, in addition to me. I'm going to interview those four and kind of let you see what our pastoral staff is going to be looking like uh, going forward on that night, and it'll give you an opportunity to just get to know them uh, a little bit better, know who they are. Uh, we're going to do that for about an hour starting at 6.30. I think there's a, a slide up there for that. And then... Um, after we're done with that at 7.30, uh, we're all going to have ice cream. It's going to be kind of like an old-fashioned church ice cream social. And some of you who weren't sold on this event until now, now you're going to be sold. Uh, from what I understand, Stephanie is negotiating with Churn Ice Cream on Central to have Churn Ice Cream uh, cater uh, the event uh, here on that night. So now some of you are like, oh yeah, I will put that on my calendar. Okay, cool. <laughs> But you have to be here at 6.30 to get the ice cream. That's part of the deal. So anyway, so put that in your calendar. I think that'll be a great, uh, great night. Uh, I want to mention and just briefly talk about um, our financial uh, situation, where we stand financially. Um, I think it's good information to let you know where we are, how things are going, and let you know that our budget for 2020 has finally been approved by uh, Big R. It took a little while longer this year for all the local budgets to be approved by Big R, be, uh, frankly, because it was a Big R issue. We were struggling with what to do about our, our health insurance. Uh, we had to go back and forth, and we eventually had to change carriers and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it took a little bit longer to get our budget approved. So, uh, our 2019 budget, going back now a year, our budget for 2019 was $1,500,000. That's what we expected in income. Our year-to-date through November, we obviously don't have December done yet, but through November is $960,000 in income. We were budgeted for the first 11 months at 962. dollars So just uh, a tick off of, of uh, our budget. 
Our expenses for the first 11 months were $901,000. We were budgeted for $960,000. So that's really good. And I just, I just want to give a shout out to our staff uh, for the good job they've done in, in, in trying to manage things, um, finding creative ways to be able to uh, take care of things, and uh, especially our operations manager, Stephanie Shoemate, who really holds um, m- most of the purse strings as it is, and just have done a, an outstanding job this year in that regard. Uh, and then our budget for 2020 that's been approved is $1,130,000. So again, this is, uh, we've never regressed in our budget. We just keep growing and getting bigger, and so this is another year uh, of that. Let me go back now, though, and talk about, <clears throat> that means in um, year-to-date, at the end of November, we had a surplus of $59,000, and it, so it looks as though likely we're going to end up with a surplus for the year. So you may, under, you may be asking very legitimate questions. So what happens to the surplus? What do we do with the surplus? Well, the way it works at Redemption Church is that uh, any surplus, 70% of that surplus goes into a special account for that local congregation where the surplus was, uh, was made. Uh, for us to be able to spend not on uh, operating expenses, not on Uh, personnel or anything like that, but on capital expenditures, anything over and above where we need to spend some money, like on music equipment, which um, in case you didn't know it, churches are pretty hard on music equipment or screens or computers or anything like that. Um, We've we've even been talking with uh, Reister. When we moved into this property more than three years ago, the only thing that didn't get torn down or upgraded in some way was this wall here, which is sort of owned by both us and Reister, and we've been talking with Reister. They initiated the conversation about taking this wall out and doing something nicer and better, but we would share the expense with, uh, with them on that, and so we could spend it, for instance, on that. I'm just giving you some, uh, some examples. The other 30% goes into a an account for all of redemption, Big R Redemption, which Big R Redemption then is able to access for growth in terms of church planting in case we decide we're going to plant a church, uh, another congregation go to 10 or 11. That will help those congregations get started. Uh, It's a way of being able to benefit them or in other cases, the acquisition of property or buildings. Um, It's kind of a, a shared account. And to give you an example, when we acquired this property, <clears throat> we were, <clears throat> excuse me, we uh, spent $1,200,000 just acquiring this property. And so, in order to pay for that, we had at Arcadia, we had already built up $300,000 in our account through surpluses. So that went towards that million one. Then we borrowed $600,000 from Big R, which we just finished paying back. So our surplus the last three years has been going to paying back Big R, that $600,000, which we just finished paying back this summer. And then the other $300,000 actually came from Big R, from that account, they gifted that money to us. So we actually benefited from the surpluses of other redemption congregations in order to be able to acquire this property. So that's pretty cool. So that's why we're uh, happy to be able to contribute 30% of any surplus that we have into that account because it's reciprocal in nature. So that's a little bit of a background on the, on the budget stuff. Uh, certainly, probably Sunday... Um, 
uh, the 26th of January, I will have a much more detailed update with a, a bigger presentation on the budget of, for 2020, um, which will show all the various uh, expense categories, and we'll, we'll talk in more depth about that. That's a brief update for you on that. Uh, so the last thing that I would say could be helpful information, uh, just a quick review of the preaching calendar for 2020. This is a project that, like I said, some of the guys work on. We all get to give input into it as well, and so we've got that set now as well. So starting January 12th, we're going to spend um, the first six weeks of, of 2020 uh, in the Old Testament book of Malachi. It's the last prophet uh, before the 400 years of silence before uh, Jesus is born. And Malachi is being used by God to speak to God's people about the fact that God's people are not doing very well. And they need, to, uh, they need some correction and they need some discipline and there's some words of judgment that are coming for, from God for his people, for his house. I have always found it interesting that when Scripture, the Bible, talks about judgment and discipline and correction... It primarily starts not with people outside of God's people, not with people outside of the church, but with God's own people, as it should be. I've always found it fascinating that we Christians tend to hold people who are not Christian, not part of the church, to a standard that we believe in and know about, but they have no idea and have no belief in. And in fact, God is saying, look, they don't know it. I'm holding you. You're the one that knows this. You're the one who knows Christ. You're the one who knows me. I need to hold you to this standard, and then you are going to be a light to those others. Okay, so he starts there. And so this message that he has for Malachi is actually also a very good message for us, uh, the church today. And then, uh, starting... Um, uh, after February 16th, so that would be the, uh, the 23rd of February through April 5th, we're going to have, we're doing something a little bit different for Redemption Church. Usually we go verse by verse through books, or in the case of Exodus, chapter by chapter. What we're going to do is we're going to have seven standalone messages that are going to comprise a seven-week series called Countercultural Convictions. Countercultural Convictions. So these are seven standalone uh, sermons on topics such as Jesus is the only way to salvation, the Bible is God's authoritative word, and God created human beings and he created them male and female, and etc., etc., for seven of these messages. Uh, the, the, the crew at, at Redemption, um, Big R, the, the, the lead uh, pastors, we all felt like it was a time, uh, especially in our cultural situation right now, to say, kind of like, here's where we stand on all of these things. We want to remind both our people, but also be able to make a firm statement as to where we stand on all of these things. So that'll, be all, that'll take us all the way up to Easter, and then April 12th will be Easter, and then after Easter, we're going to go through the Gospel of John verse by verse. So this will not be like Exodus, where we went chapter by chapter. We're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And so we're going to do that all the way till Advent 2020, and we're only going to get through the first 11 chapters uh, before we hit Advent 2020. Then we'll have Advent, probably have another one or two one-offs, and then we're going to pick up with the Gospel of John in 2021, and that will probably take us to Advent 2021 as well. So we're going to be knee-deep in the Gospel of John for quite some time, which I think is going to be absolutely fantastic. So there's your helpful 
information. I hope that was at least somewhat helpful. Here now are three observations. I'll go a little bit deeper on these observations. Here's the first one. Recently, a candidate for president who had to drop out of the race because of a complete lack of support, admittedly, uh, this candidate advocated strongly and got a lot of press about this idea that he wanted to end charitable tax deductions for tithes and offerings to churches, and he wanted to eliminate non-tax status for any church that did not agree with and promote his definition of marriage. That got a lot of press, and let me tell you something. There was an onslaught of worried Christian people that this might actually happen. It was really interesting to watch um, and listen to the reaction of that. So, a couple comments on that. The first one won't take very long. And I know some of you may call me naive by saying this, but here's the first comment. I don't think that'll ever happen. Okay, I just don't. I, I don't think that that's ever going to get legs and actually happen, at least not in the foreseeable future. And maybe it's just the fact that I'm 60 years old and it won't happen in my lifetime, but it might happen in many of yours, so I don't really care, okay? <laughs> I don't know if that's what it is, but I just, I, you know, this has come up before and it's just never gotten legs, okay? But, but secondly, and more importantly, I think this is way more important than whether or not it's going to happen. Whether or not it's going to happen in my opinion, really doesn't matter. Here's why. More importantly, if it did happen, here you go. We, people of faith, are worried about tax deductions and tax exemptions. In the first and second century, during the early church, you understand, they had neither. They had neither of those things. I just want to try to put a little perspective on this. Instead, in the first and second century, if you called yourself a a Christian, it was likely that you were going to get killed. Okay, so tax deduction, lions. Okay, you read your early church history, Nero, the emperor Nero from 54 to 68. His thing, uh, besides the lions thing, his thing was to find a Christian, impale them, and then dip them in oil while they were still alive and light them on fire in order to light his patio at night. Okay? Anybody here experience that in the 21st century in the American church? Anybody? No, see? See, I'm just trying to put... I, I know, it would be awful, it would be inconvenient. I like doing my taxes and getting that deduction. It is wonderful to be able to do... I get all of that. But it won't be the end of the church. And here you go. It won't be the end of people giving to the church either. Because giving, I still believe, because this has been even my own, it's what, it's what Scripture teaches, but it's also been my own experience, validated in my own experience, that people give through the movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's just an end-of-the-year benefit that you get a deduction for. People will still give. It won't be the end of the church. It might, be, it might bring some challenging times or whatever. But, but here's the other thing. We've we got we to gotta quit being uh, surprised that stuff like this comes up. When will we quit being surprised by these things? Peter wrote in the first century this, 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I, I'm the same way. Something comes at me that's unpleasant because I'm a Christian, and the first thing I'm doing is like, what is going on? Why me? This is so strange. 
And Peter's going, it's not strange. You should be expecting this. If you call Christ your Savior, you better be ready for there to be pushback in this world because this world, this dark world, does not like light. It does not like light. So he says this, and then he writes further, not only are we not supposed to be surprised, but instead we are to do what? Rejoice. We're to rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In a sense, it's a validation of our faith. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says it's actually a blessing if we're insulted because we are in Christ. Then he says this, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, if you're suffering because of your own sin, that doesn't count. That's not going to bring you any glory. It might bring correction, but it's not going to bring you glory. The glory comes from suffering because you are in Christ, because you call yourself a follower of Christ. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin where? Where does judgment begin? What did I just say? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who did not obey the gospel of God be for those who did not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's loosely quoting a verse from Proverbs there. And he ends this section by saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't let it become too burdensome to do good. And it's not just Peter who has something to say about this. Uh, Jesus also had something uh, similar to say about this as well in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they answered him, and they said to him, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. You're the Messiah. You're you're the suffering servant from Isaiah that we just spent four weeks talking about. And Jesus said, answered Peter, and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just a point of clarification here. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to build my church on Peter, a mere mortal human being. He's saying, you're Peter, and on this rock, the gospel... The truth of me being the Messiah, the Savior, that's what's going to build this church. If the church was built on human beings, it would, not, it would not survive. But since it's built on the gospel, since it's built on the truth of God, since it's built on the Messiah, Jesus, it prevails. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Two things about that. When Jesus says that we're going to win, essentially is what he's saying, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer and that it won't be challenging. And second of all, It does, however, mean that the world, the culture, Satan, they're coming for us and they're coming hard and they're coming fast. We need to understand that. The world is coming. 
Peter said, Peter knew it in the first century. Jesus knew it in the first century. And it's been like that now for 21 centuries. We're in the 21st century of this. The world, the culture is coming for us, and they're not playing around. They're coming hard, and they're coming fast. Peter says in his book, we need to be sober-minded and alert. We need to not look at the reality of the coming persecution and oppression through rose-colored glasses. We need to understand that this is spiritual war, and it's serious, and we need to be ready, and we need to not be surprised. Some of you will understand this or get this. Uh, I've been rereading the book, This Present Darkness. Anybody ever heard of that book? Anybody? Yeah, some of you. Yeah. Okay, probably most of you who are older like me. This book was all the rage in the 80s, okay? Frank Peretti, okay? Now, here you go. I've been rereading. I'm almost done with it. Let me tell you, I I get it. I'm reading it. I'm going, this just feels a little bit hokey. And I think it was kind of hokey in the 80s too, okay? But here's the other thing about this present darkness. He was 100% right. It was prophetic, And I would argue that that book is more true today than it was even in the 80s. There is a spiritual war going on, and we're in the middle. You call yourself a Christian, you need to be ready. You need to be ready. This is coming. Very uplifting for the last message of the uh, year. Guys excited? Okay, here's second thing. Second uplifting thing. Here you go. Let's talk for a moment about change. Change. Uh, This has been my observation for years, especially as a pastor. Change, the word change, always needs definition. Because if we just uh, attach our assumptions to the word change, we're usually okay with it, okay? Here's what I found. When change is assumed to be about other people changing and other systems changing for my benefit, change to my liking or my way of thinking We are all for it. Yes, change. We're all for it. But when change is about us having to change, well, now we're not so interested, right? Isn't that true? The employer always wants the employee to change, often with good reason, but not always. And of course, the employee always wants the employer to change. I mean, this is just simple human nature, but it being human nature does not make it correct. Many of you have heard me mention this before. When I meet with couples who are struggling as a pastor doing some pastoral counseling, what I found is that almost invariably, each spouse wants the other spouse to change while they remain the same. Oh, Pastor Frank, my wife really needs to work on some things. Oh, Pastor Frank, my husband really needs to get some issues resolved. But when the possibility of change for them is introduced, let me tell you something. My calendar just magically clears up. It's just fascinating. I can go to lunch with whoever I want. It's really cool. Okay? Uh, G.K. Chesterton once wrote this. When you can't change your circumstances, it's time to change you. Now, that was Chesterton's polite way of saying, the only change you need to concern yourself with is yours. Because the only change that you have even a remote chance of having an influence over is your own. How many of you have tried and successfully 
radically change someone else, especially without them wanting to change. It just doesn't work. In fact, it becomes one of the most frustrating things that a person can do. I am on a mission to change others to my vision of what they should be. God bless you in your ministry. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit is there for, and all of us need to engage that Holy Spirit to change ourselves. The Bible calls change transformation and talks a lot about it. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the first thing he says as, as an example of this uh, spiritual worship is this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what, the will of, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's the challenge. We rarely, you and I rarely, if ever, understand or embrace change as an opportunity to be transformed by the grace of God. But that's what it is. And God constantly calls us to this transformation. Do not be conformed to this world. Um, the Phillips uh, translation says it this way. I love this. Do not allow yourself to be pressed into the mold of the culture. Rather, be transformed by the gospel. And so we've had, a, we've had a season of change this past year at Redemption Arcadia. And we have a season of change coming up at Redemption Arcadia as well. Uh, Cody has left to find his place in the marketplace. Uh, Josh, Josh and Rachel have moved to Alhambra. And we have two new pastors joining our staff. And as a result, our staff has grown. Uh, other change that's happened, I'm, I'm a year older, and I found that rarely, if ever, do I reference the Godfather or Seinfeld anymore. So change happens. The Holy Spirit is working. <laughs> now, these things may make us uncomfortable. These not, not me, the, the other ones may make us uncomfortable. But they are good things, and I would argue they are God-ordained things designed for our trans transformation and our betterment. I believe these are wonderful opportunities to be able to trust God and to trust each other and to even have some fun and maybe even try some new things. What I found is that change will either harden our hearts or soften our hearts depending on our presupposition as to the cause of the purpose of the change and more importantly, depending on our view of God. But, but, but we are a church and so... No change, pleasant or unpleasant, is not caused or allowed by God in the midst of his sovereign will. So the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with dismay and cynicism and feelings of inconvenience? Or are we going to respond with excitement and expectation about what God is doing? Because he's a God of grace and favor and he wants us to thrive. Even if that means challenge. And even if that means our personal preferences may not be met. Uh, many of you know Allison DeSerafino. She's on our staff here. And frankly, sometimes she says the most profound things in our staff meetings. And she said this, and I asked her if I could quote her on this, and she said yes. Uh, recently at a staff meeting, she said this. <clears throat> if I believe we serve a generous God, then change is a tool transforming me to serve him wholeheartedly and to love others sacrificially. But if I believe we serve a capricious and cynical God, change is a weapon he is using to make my life miserable. That's just true. I was cut to the quick when she said that. I'm telling you. 
Because God is generous. Us, our problem, we're slaves to scarcity. Now, you've heard me talk about this before if you were here last, last spring about uh, the psychologist Lynn Twist's um, research into this area. That we are people of scarcity. That we have a scarcity mindset. Our whole lives are built around scarcity. Her illustration is so clear. We wake up in the morning and the first thing we think is, I didn't get enough sleep. Got a scarcity of sleep. I need more sleep. And, 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 and then we think, oh my gosh, I can't believe the day I have planned today. I don't have enough time. So now we have a scarcity of sleep. We have a scarcity of time. And then we think about the resources we need to be able to live the life that we need to li- live in the marketplace and at home. And we're like, and I don't have enough resources. So our lives are driven by scarcity. Our lives are driven by this idea that we don't have enough, we don't have enough, we don't have enough. We are people of not enough. And yet God says, I've given you this abundant life. God says, here's what you need to do. You need to love me and love others. It's as if he's saying, actually, the scarcity is of love. We need more love. But the world we live in, the world we live in, culture tells us to look out for yourself and yourself only. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. This is what Paul, with the Holy Spirit speaking through him, this is what Paul calls our lives, light and momentary affliction. And that light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. See, what we do, what I do, we place our faith in what we can see. And and reality is what is unseen. Because what we see is temporal and what we don't see is eternal. And that's what Paul says, for the things that are seen are transient or temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, here you go, last observation for today. Um, We have monthly meetings at Redemption Church, <clears throat> where third Wednesday of every month, all the pastors from all the congregations get together. Even the pastors from Flagstaff drive down, the pastors from Tucson drive up. We all get together, and there's usually about 60 of us on that Wednesday. And Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, leads us through some things. Uh, sometimes he'll bring in an outside speaker to lead, lead us uh, through some things. Some of you have even experienced those, um, those um, meetings on occasion uh, because we'll have like a leadership forum and we'll invite uh, people from the congregations to be able to come. So we do that once a month. Most of the time uh, during those meetings, at the beginning of those meetings, we also have somebody lead us in worship and so we sing together. And I, I know this may sound a little bit strange, but when you get 60 pastors in a room together and sing together, it's pretty awesome. I mean, it, it's just, it, it just sounds uh, really, really good. It's like a magnificent uh, choir. In fact, Josh Reese, who's with us here today from Gateway, he's on several occasions led us uh, during um, these times. Well, at the all-big-R pastor meeting in November, we sang a particular song. And I will tell you, I'm often moved by songs as I especially uh, take the time to slow down and look at the lyrics, at the words. I I begin to be moved by them in a particular way. And this song, I have heard and sung literally hundreds of times, but this time, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just being in the room with those 60 guys, and I don't know what it was, but it just really struck me how profound it was and how, how wonderful it is. 
And I'm sure you've had this happen too. You've read the same scripture over and over and over and then suddenly one day the Holy Spirit like turns a switch and, and you have a, a new understanding and a new meaning of this, of this passage in, in your life. Or for you, a song that you've listened to or sung several times and suddenly you're singing it with a, with a different attitude. Maybe even a person in your life. <laughs> Why is this person in my life? And then one day it just like kind of dawns on you why that person uh, is in your life. So what's the song? We've already sung it once today. It was the last song we sung before uh, the sermon, In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone. Four stanzas, and this song is rooted in Scripture. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through the lyrics, just to have you hear them again, and then I'm going to go back and just make some comments that I think are helpful to all of us here. So here you go, stanza number one. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Uh, I, I've come up with, and it was easy to do, one word that sort of exemplifies each stanza, and this is hope. So it starts with hope. Stanza two, in Christ alone who took on flesh, even if it wasn't up there, you could guess what the word is for this stanza, right? In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of, gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. There it is, okay, sorry. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. So the second stanza, incarnation. Here's the third stanza. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Guess what the word is for this one. I know it's on the screen. You don't have to guess. I get it. And as he stands in victory... Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Resurrection. Hope, incarnation, resurrection. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Deliverance, redemption, salvation, atonement. So hope, incarnation, resurrection, deliverance. So let me go back and just make some comments about some of this. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Um, that's not metaphorical. That's literal based on Ephesians chapter 5 if you think about it. Last Sunday, we were in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, talking about the wisdom of God and the will of God. Right after that, Paul says that as Christians, one of the things that we should be doing, not all the time, but one of the things that we should be doing is that we should be communicating to each other in songs, psalms, and prayers. Songs of praises. That it would not be weird if we actually sang to each other occasionally. I know some of you are like, I'm not doing that. Okay, I get that. But that's what the Holy Spirit can do to us and in us and for us. 
that we are to sing to each other. This cornerstone, this solid ground, clearly this has got to be a reference to Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, look, you need to understand and ask yourself this question, where are you building your life? Are you building it on the solid rock, which is the cornerstone, which is me? Are you building your life on me, the cornerstone that can weather any storm, that can weather any wind, that can weather any flood? So that when those storms of life come, the, the, the spiritual warfare comes, you're not shaken at all? Or are you building your life on the temporal things of this world, on sand? Are you building your life on things that when the storms come, that foundation is just going to be washed away or blown away? And the question should be easily answered. I need to build my life on the solid rock. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. This is interesting to me. Uh, so often... What we need to understand, we believe that in our life, what we're doing is we're walking a straight line, and our problem is that God is kind of curving. And occasionally, God will intersect with our life, but then he goes off and does something else. We're the ones walking the straight line, but God's the one kind of doing this, and, and we're constantly hoping that maybe God will come back around. We've got it all backwards. God is true north. God is the one walking this straight line. We're the ones that are meandering. And wandering around. And when we meander over here, here's, this is what the people of Israel did for centuries. Here's what they do. They meander over here and then they, they go, what are you doing, God? We're over here. You, God, come over here. This is where you need to be is over here. No, God says we need to be with him. He initiates and we respond. We need to understand that. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Stand on him and on his true north. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. When striving cease is actually a double entendre. There's two meanings there. When striving cease is a polite way of saying, when I die. Okay? But it's also this idea that once we understand that our faith is now in the eternal, in Christ, our strivings after this elusive scarcity business, they cease. We begin to realize that we have an abundant life, and that abundant life is in Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, seeking after the will and wisdom of God. My comforter, my all in all, all of life is all for Jesus. Here in the hope of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. It's hard to imagine we just celebrated Christmas. It's hard to imagine that little baby in the manger is the creator and sovereign God over this entire universe. And nothing was happening outside of his will and his control. That little baby in the manger. It's amazing. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. The people that put him on the cross and then stood at the cross and mocked him and terrorized him they scorned him, and they're the ones that he came to save. And they knew better. They knew better. I, I, I think Greg Easterbrook is a helpful author. I've read all of his books. His most recent book I read this summer. Um, in 1999, he published a book called The Progress Paradox. Some of you remember me speaking about this book. It profoundly changed my view on a lot of things. Um, it, this last year, he wrote, a, uh, he wrote a book called It's Better Than It Looks. And I read it this past summer. And he started the book uh, with this outline. He said, human beings essentially have four ways of knowing something. And he put knowing in quotes. Knowing. We think we know something four different ways. Uh, 
Here's the first one. That which we are certain of and is clearly provable. Second of all, we know things through faith and doubt. We can't prove or disprove what we believe and don't believe, but we we believe it or don't believe it through faith and doubt. Third way we know something is just our opinion. And then the fourth way. The book is not about the first three ways. His book is about the fourth way. This is the one that he's taking issue with. Here it is. That which we desire to believe and therefore do believe with passion and sincerity but isn't true and is clearly provably not true. All of us hold those convictions, every one of us. That was those who scorned Jesus. They were the ones that were saying, Jesus, you need to do something for us. You need to do a sign. You need to do a miracle. Do something that that clearly tells us that you are God, that you are the Messiah. All right, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That was cool. We'll see you tomorrow and see what happens tomorrow. Okay. So then he takes a, the next day he takes a, like a little sardine and Hawaiian King's Roll Lunchable and he turns it into a meal for 5,000 people. Mm, Not enough. You ran out of butter. So do something else. Okay. Well, I'm going to walk on water. Mm, No, not good enough. He did everything they needed to know. And it was clearly provable to them. And they scorned him. They scorned him. They scorned him. That's those people. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. For every sin on him was laid. Isaiah 53, we just spent a couple weeks going through that. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Jesus doesn't turn things upside down. He, ta- he makes things right side up. Stanza three, there in the ground his body lay, defeat. The Romans and the Jews, they're dancing on Jesus' tomb at this point. Yes, they thought they had won. Lie to the world by darkness slain, by sin. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Greatest comeback victory ever in the history of the world. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. In Paul's writings in the New Testament, 13 letters, 176 times he describes us as being in Christ. Think that's not important? We are in Christ over and over. In Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. For I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. So much for this idea of no such thing as blood atonement. This this, um, movement, which was a hundred years ago, there was a big no blood atonement movement. Blood atonement is offensive. We don't want to offend anybody with the blood atonement. Atonement is through Jesus as an example, and we just follow his example. Jesus is through being a good person. Jesus is through this, that, or or, uh, uh, salvation is through this, that, or the other thing. Atonement is through this, it's through this, it's through this, but it's not through blood atonement. We have scholars. Quote scholars today saying the same thing. Atonement isn't through blood. That's offensive. All you have to do is just be a good person. All you have to do is live uh, Christ's example in your life and you'll, be, uh, you'll have atonement. That's not true. Read your Bible. These scholars, these biblical scholars have not read the one thing in their descriptive title, their self-descriptive title, that makes a difference. And that would be the Bible. You have to read the Bible because it's blood atonement. And then no guilt in life, no fear in death. What a gift. No more guilt, no more fear. This is the power in Christ in, of Christ in me. It's all him. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. 
No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Nothing, once you are his, nothing can take away your salvation. What we need to understand, even if we need to remind ourselves of it every single day, is we cannot lose what we never accomplished in the first place. It was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. We didn't do anything. We just received this gift. We can't lose what he gave us, what we did not accomplish, what he accomplished for us. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That's the second time in this song it says, I'll stand. And it just makes me think of Martin Luther's trial 500 years ago. When the church came at him because he said, righteousness is by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ, and he was called a heretic because he read his Bible. And when they tried him, he said to his, his uh, court, he said, here I stand because I can do no other. That's it. This sounds so much like Philippians chapter 2, and that's what I'll end with. This amazing section of chapter 2 in Philippians where Paul writes these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See the world as Jesus sees it, not as you see it. Because he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not say, I'm not part of this salvation equation because it's going to be too hard. I'm God, I shouldn't have to do that. Instead, he made the decision to come and serve us. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, the worst possible way you could die. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel, and it's in Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for songs like in Christ alone that remind us of all of these truths. We thank you for your son who has saved us, who has accomplished what we could never accomplish. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us and fills us even now, God. I pray we welcome your spirit. We ask your spirit to lead, guide, and direct us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.